Welcome to Breakout Startups, a podcast about the most prominent entrepreneurs and investors building the companies that transform our lives. My name is Tomer Federman. I'm an entrepreneur and an angel investor in early stage enterprise and fintech startups. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech and previously was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Breakout Startups podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Excited to welcome to the show today, Constantine Richer, founder and CEO of Block Demon. Constantine, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tomar, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to learn more about what uh, you're working on. To get started, uh, what is Block Demon, Constantine? Yeah, Blockdaemon is a, a cloud formation tooling provider in the blockchain space. So we um, help projects and foundations with decentralization by automating and making it easy for anyone to operate nodes. And we also build professional and institutional-grade infrastructure for liquidity providers to connect to these protocols. And so, um, you know, via really fully, fully managed node clusters and APIs and such things. So we really try to bridge um, the, what we currently perceive to be a gap um, holding up blockchain adoption, which is uh, the promise of decentralization and performance coming together. And so that's the delta we aim to fill. Yeah, that's always, I think, viewed as a, as a trade-off, right, in the space, at least as things stand right now. It's either you want to get more decentralized with your infrastructure or you want better performance. But combining the two is pretty tricky at this stage. Yeah, and it translates to governance and liquidity as well, right? And so you always need to have this inflection point with any network until you have network effect. And so we help uh, facilitate that via technology and then as a secondary function via liquidity and uh, enabling liquidity cycles in these networks by onboarding capital holders, exchanges, custodians, and um, allowing them to seamlessly um, you know, move currency on and off these chains. Yeah. So for folks listening to this who may not be uh, that familiar with blockchain and decentralization, can you explain a bit more about what your infrastructure entail? Yeah, sure. So um, decentralized networks are uh, networks consisting of nodes, and a node is um, really contains all the components um, of uh, really a data center uh, or uh, you know the the physical uh, storage and compute function where the ledger resides, as well as the software that dictates the consensus and the peers and connectors that connect the node to other networks uh, to other nodes in the network. And so really what happens is the storage, uh, there's a storage component and a compute component, um, and uh, and then there's a connectivity component. And that's what a node is. 
Um, and so they differ per chain based on how large the storage part is, i.e. how much history does the chain have, um, you know, what compute configuration does it use. Um, they vary on uh, the consensus mechanisms, which really all it is, it's, it dictates how the node behaves, um, you know, at what speed validate, you know, they validate transactions um, and how blocks are created. And what happens if the node is connected to the wrong set of peers, for example. <clears throat> and so that's what a node is. And, and it's just continuously tricky to operate them, mostly because in decentralized networks, uh, networks grow in a nonlinear fashion, which means it's very hard to plan for where the network um, has latency issues, how the network has node distribution around the world. Um, it's hard to predict when software updates drop because those are often open source foundations that they don't have a clear leader. Um, and so it requires continuous awareness and observation of the network in order to um, perform well in the network um, all the time. And, uh, and that's really what people pay us for, is to take away that pain, right? And so to not have to be in Discord channels and... Um, reconfigure, um, you know, kind of a semi, semi sort of somewhat complex configuration between storage size um, and, uh, and and software uh, components, right? And so you can never deploy a node and just have it be. And so the the ease of use is, is really paramount here. And then for professional entities, it's specifically the, the sort of disaster recovery uh, if something does happen to the network, and it always can in a decentralized network, how quickly can you get it back up again? And um, and so that's really the premium type of service that people pay us for, as well as um, clusters of nodes, which you need in order to ensure that um, you have um, uh, speed when you submit transactions for validation. And so um, then it gets a little more complex around network orchestration and how do you do that? Um, which is interesting for traders and folks that trade on things like Ethereum, where gas prices um, are high and, you know, it, it, it matters how quickly you get your transaction in the chain. And so, you know, so, so there's variations there, but that's sort of the quintessential nature of our business right now. Right. So basically, clients come to you when they want to implement a node infrastructure in place. Yeah, when they want to connect to a blockchain, right? So there's different, but that's correct. So so customers, um, we have three distinct cohorts. So one are exchanges, custodians, financial institutions who want to submit transactions through the network, right? And so they require a particular setup um, and very often want high availability clusters because they don't want you know their customers not to be able to send around tokens, for example, or make a trade. Um, then we have the protocols themselves. So any major project, um, and with project I mean a blockchain, um, has a foundation and they want to are constantly thinking about how to enable the developer community. And uh, our tooling is really high, highly regarded and it aids foundations with onboarding custodians in the exchanges as well as making it easy for developers to deploy nodes to build dApps on top of. And so we automate all this stuff. We're still the only place you can go and blockchain where on our website you can click on our marketplace and deploy 70 different node types with a click of a button and a credit card 
So you don't need to call us. You can just go and deploy a Bitcoin node or Ethereum node or Stellar Ripple, whatever it is you want. Um, and networks like that because it means that, um, you know, you don't have to be an expert um, to uh, launch a node. And ideally that aids decentralization over time. Um, only if these nodes are managed because the more nodes you have, the more fallible the network becomes. So then quality becomes an issue and that's the other problem that we solve. Do you handle also the hardware piece of things? Yes. Uh, I mean, it varies, right? So, but we offer pre-packaged um, uh, hybrid cloud as, um, nodes, meaning you can select the cloud provider and the data center you want your node to reside in, um, but you don't have to configure anything manually, right? So we do all that for you. So you can say, hey, I want, a, um, I want my node to be on Google Cloud in Europe, or you say, I want Azure in North America, or I want AWS in Asia or Australia, or, um, you know, for territorial distribution. And a lot of financial and professional entities um, need quite a lot of flexibility there based on where they pay taxes. And so that's why that matters. And you want to give people a choice uh, where to run these nodes, because where the node sits is often where they have to, where they're earning. Um, and that requires, um, it might have security implications on the regulatory side as well as revenue implications on the tax side. Makes sense. So let's talk for a sec about which types of organizations need such an infrastructure. Who are your clients in general and why do they see value or a need for a more decentralized infrastructure? Yeah, well, as I've said, like the main thing is, is it's not the, the cloud that's the issue. It's the performance of the node and not having to worry about it. Um, so AWS doesn't, as a cloud provider, they don't manage your blockchain, right? And so... Um, yeah, yeah, I know. But I guess on a more fundamental level, why do they need nodes, right? Like why do they run nodes to begin with? Um, yeah, great. And so, uh, good question. So any exchange custodian... Uh, anyone who wants to submit transactions to a network needs to run a full node. Um, it's the only way to directly submit transaction to a blockchain network. And so uh, anyone who has you know, a larger commercial stake in it wants to ensure that that happens directly because you don't want a middleman who can cut you off from your node. And so um, any professional exchange, custodian, financial institution that trades needs to run a full node. Um, uh, so that's uh, cohort one. Just on that, Constantine, so they need to run their full node, what, for greater control? Because, I mean, obviously you can add transactions to the blockchain without running a node, but you're saying exchanges and custodians and larger institutions need a greater degree of control and security, and that's why they're running their own nodes? Yeah, it's not entirely true. Um, uh, so... Uh, the the node is the entry point for a transaction, right? And so somebody somewhere your transaction needs to hit a node. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, but it doesn't mean that I need to run that node myself. Well, well, sure. You can use someone else's node. Uh, but uh, the whole point, obviously, for an exchange and a custodian is that obviously they want direct access. Um, they don't, you know, like it's a a little bit like any stock trader who wants direct access to a trading tool or something, you know? So um, the, the there are no exchanges, I'd say, or custodians that don't run a full node themselves. It's because otherwise you're not, first off, you don't have your own copy of the ledger. 
Um, and obviously you need that. Secondary, uh, you want to make sure that your transactions are prioritized when they hit the node, right? Because otherwise you have no control um, over that. And, um, and so it's such a foundational component of an exchange or a custodian's business that, um, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's, it, it's an absolute requirement um, for those type of customers. Um, and so those are, uh, and that creates a lot of demand, right? Because there are a lot of exchanges and custodians. There's also continuously more really well-backed protocols. And in order to trade them, you need to run nodes on them. And so custodians are, for example, continuously looking to outsource node operations for newer protocols because they just don't have the capacity and manpower um, to operate them manually all themselves. And what led you to Startblock, Demon? How did you get to the space? Yeah, um, so, you know, I started my career um, uh, at, at, in the telecom field, building sort of network technology. Uh, became an entrepreneur around a decade ago, building B2B SaaS platforms with a sort of pretty heavy data tilt. Um, and um, I sold my last company in 2017 um, and had some free time as an entrepreneur. I've been structurally excited about blockchain uh, since 2015 when I joined some boards and stuff. Um, I bought some Bitcoin earlier than that, but, you know, not enough to... Um, you know, totally self-fund, for example, what Blockdaemon was, but I was trying to run an Ethereum node for a token sale I was working on with a few friends in the sort of middle of 2017. And uh, we, um, uh, you know, it was just super hard to keep the node functional. And um, and it was uh, very surprising to me because at the time there was this exuberant expect expectation around what uh, 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 blockchains will be able to do. And when you actually ran the physical technology, it was, you know, beyond archaic and, you know, generations behind, for example, tooling we're used to on the cloud formation side. And so the, that delta is what excited me and, and what I wanted to bring to the space was really cloud formation tooling, right? Like the stuff, the Heroku, the Datadogs, New Relic, all the type of tooling we have in order to manage our cloud instances um, that wasn't available for the blockchain space. And so um, really providing exactly, you know, what I said, like the, the sort of automation um, and uh, for, for professional entities so they don't have to work with in these nonlinear open source um, uh, entities. In your view, like what's, uh, what are some of the things that are really important to distinguish yourself from some of the other competitors in the space? Well, I don't think we have a per se competitor in terms of automated node operation. Um, we're still the only platform where you can go and launch all these different protocols automatically with a credit card. Um, and so we're also unique that our node infrastructure tools com is composed of proof of work as well as POS. And so, you know, there we do have competitors um, that run staking pools, for example, like on and nodes on staking ecosystems. Uh, we do that too, but for us, it's just one component in a larger tooling roadmap um, for these networks. We also run uh, full nodes for them besides validators, which are different, um, and then ex infrastructure for exchanges and custodians, as well as APIs. And so... You know, we're, we have a more complete set um, of solutions and think about our tooling landscape as ultimately uh, really developer tooling for folks that are, are paid by institutions to connect to chains. And so I think we're 
fairly unique in that particular setup as far as we see it and uh and uh yeah we so there's a lot of stuff and projects we support that no one else really has any automation tooling for specifically in the sort of top 10 token world and um, we're still the only bitcoin cloud deployment tool that's fully automated which always surprises me but um, it, it was the first network we launched and uh, we're still the only provider that uh, does that for example Hmm, really? I am aware of some other players in the space, but maybe they're not as automated as you guys. I mean, I don't know. Well, try and be specific. So, uh, For instance, uh, Bison Trails. Yeah. Well, well, they're different. They're focused on staking networks, right? So you wouldn't be able to deploy a Bitcoin node uh, via their platform, for example. Got it. So you can't use Bison Trails to, to put in place a, a Bitcoin node. I'm the wrong guy to ask. Um, I can only judge what I see on the platform, right? Which is, um, they, there's no way you can purchase a node automatically. Um, and uh, for example, for Bitcoin or Ethereum or Stellar or Ripple or any of those. Got it. Yeah, so that, that's, that's an important distinction for sure. I mean, the automation piece in getting up and running is, I'm sure, is a big one. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I don't want to like, you know, I really like the Bison Trails guys, for example. I think they're, they have a very similar, um, I think, uh, ethos around uh, platform, which is unique to probably us and them. I think we're probably the two only companies that are approaching this from a little bit of a middleware um, uh, setup. I think if I, I would say they're a little more focused on crypto stuff, you know, like, and we're a little more generic on the blockchain developer tooling side. Um, I mean, there's obviously, you know, we're obviously uh, very often get compared to each other. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's definitely the company that gets referenced the most in context to us. I think one of the things I always talk to, uh, always um, um, uh, the Joe from Bison Trails and I talked about is, I think there's, it's really important also for people to understand that specifically node operation can't be a zero-sum game. And so we've tried to establish uh, cordial relationships, even though we also are very competitive with each other, where I want good people running nodes and networks. And I also know that I can't run all nodes in a network because if I do that, then it's not a blockchain. Um, you know, and so... I have an appreciation for companies like them who run quality nodes in a network because ultimately I want these networks to succeed. And so it's an interesting coexistence, you know, where we have different tilts in our approach, but I think a general appreciation for everyone's approach. Yeah, that's definitely great to see. And I think also the nice thing is that as an industry, I mean, it's grown significantly, right? I think you've started the company, what, like three years ago? Yeah, two and a half years, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think a lot of folks tend to agree that the blockchain space in general is only getting started, right? And already it's probably in far different place than it was like two and a half or three years ago. So even if you're competitors, my point is like the pie keeps getting bigger. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we've definitely... Ben, I mean, for us, it's been super exciting. You know, I kind of feel very lucky as an entrepreneur because I started Block Demon really, you know, at scale with like the first investment round coming in in sort of March 2018. And, you know, you couldn't have picked a worse time to start a blockchain company <laughs> because the second I started, really the market really fell apart fairly drastically 
until the end of the year, you know, like actually, if you remember, and it didn't impact us in a way, you know, obviously we had venture money from more enterprise EVCs, but the general sort of awareness of and, and feel in the market for um, was, you know, depreciating really quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think also in many ways, I mean, the whole ICO craziness that you're uh, referring to end of 2017, beginning of 2018. In many ways, I feel like it took a long time to recover from that as an industry. Yeah, totally right. And, and totally, you're absolutely right. And, and so it was interesting because it impacted our ability to raise capital just because, you know, I remember when I raised my first um, uh, pre-seed in, in early 2018, you know, everybody wanted to write us a check. You know what I mean? Like at that time, like when I started talking, let's say in December 2017, you know, Silicon Valley, everybody was like, wow, yeah, we, we need a crypto play. Um, can we please invest in you? You know, like that was the easiest raise I ever had. A year later, it was the opposite. Um, everyone has cooled down so drastically, you know, where they're like, oh, no, we don't want to touch anything that's crypto. This might be dead altogether. And it was interesting because I feel it weeded out a lot of the folks that are really purely in it for quick returns. And yeah. The sort of folks like us who are really just built, we just kept on improving our product and, and, and uh, you know, being hustlers and, and building quality infrastructure. And uh, it feels like we're now reaping the benefits of it. And we were lucky enough that we, I think, built close enough to the market that we've been growing consistently over the last, uh, really since we existed. But the trajectory has changed drastically. You know, I'd say like even since... Since like March, um, we've um, grown our monthly recurring revenue by 5x. And wow, it's, that's crazy. Well, it, yeah, and, and it's really driven mostly by something we've been predicting and why we've built Blockdaemon is because we figured that the, you know, the more quality protocols launch, like the Polkadots, the Cielos, the... You know, like, I mean, we're launching six, I think we just did near. there's Oasis coming, Flow is coming, Libra is coming, mobile coin, like, I mean, you name it, we run core validators and, and developer tooling for it. And so, um, and so they, which means that we get, uh, these networks pay us to build toolings. Uh, we have investors who want to run nodes or delegate tokens to us. And then exchanges and custodians are under much more pressure to support more and more of these protocols, which increases the likelihood that they will outsource that component. And so, you know, and that's just currently what's happening for companies like us because we have automation. So that acceleration is what? Just due to basically timing? Like you're saying a lot of protocols are going live now and they're looking for an infrastructure player such as yourself to help them with the launch or do you see something bigger happening here again as an industry where more and more people are looking for decentralized solutions uh, absolutely and so but i think and, and that's the the fun part for us is you know so so we we're hitting all of them which is one is we can support a lot of protocols because the way we build our architecture we have a lot of standardized processes so we're very capital efficient and we can add new projects very quickly that's one. And so we can service the need of all these protocols and investors and exchanges and custodians probably, I would say, better than anyone. Um, uh, specifically, if you think about, um, um, uh, you know, kind of what we're, 
what we're able, like how, how easy we're able to do it. We're still a very small company. We're very capital efficient. Um, the second thing is that um, we're also able to run high-grade ISO-compliant infrastructure. We're very strong on security. Um, we had customers in the past like Shell Oil and folks like that. And so we can actually run really um, high-performant, very high-secure, externally audited infrastructure for any of the new financial uh, institutions who want to suddenly start offer custody or like PayPal or Square, you know, start uh, allowing people to purchase Bitcoin. Um, all these guys need to run nodes and they're, you know, we fulfill their requirements in terms as an outsourced tech provider that they can interact with us, which is fairly unique. You know, like most crypto companies are still a little, which I love, you know, it's a little, hey, we're in a basement, we're iterating, um, but we're not necessarily, you know, part of the more, um, uh, accepted realm of enterprise software, where there are certain things you need that might slow you down, but ultimately allow adoption, right? And so, um, and so we've always been in that sort of we've built this stuff, so we're able to service those type of customers right away. And so, uh, so, so it's a really perfect storm, I'd say, uh, for a company like us. I mean, we have more demand than we can service. Now, the question is, you know, how do you? What does that mean? How how does it have longevity? And how over time, as an infrastructure provider, do you really capture um, some of the true value? Um, uh, some of the true uh, value that these chains can generate, right? And so um, we want to do more than just build a successful software company. You know, we want to really bring on a financial revolution and be uh, ultimately um, a democratizer of node infrastructure over time. And so uh, we have grand ambitions. And uh, But it's nice when, you know, you see your first sort of thesis come together as an entrepreneur and... Uh, and uh, you're in a sort of growth phase, it just makes your life a lot easier. How do you see the company evolve over the coming years? The key thing for us is, so ultimately, um, right now, we horizontally run nodes for these blockchain. You know, like you can scale up running 20 Bitcoin nodes in a minute. You just click a button on blockchain, and you can do that with Ethereum and every other chain. So there's this horizontal scale across clouds that we offer. Um, I think the next step for us is to uh, vertically integrate them. So to allow the interoperability between these chains, right? And so, and make that a product, right? So thinking about it as a little like a bridge as a service sort of model is interesting to us because then you build these liquidity loops and grids that are interesting because they offer different means to extract value out of the network than what we currently do, which is you pay us MR dollars per month per node, or we have fee share on delegations on staking networks. But I'm really intrigued in tapping into the sort of actually volume that sits within these networks. And so um, that's been interesting for us to play with. And, and so we're that's sort of going to be a lot of our push in 2021 is going to be further automation for high-end institutions to come into the market, the Bank of Americas, the MasterCards, all those type of guys. So tooling on that end that's really professional and um, at least on par, if not better, than what they used to when they operate apps on Amazon, for example. Um, and then secondary to that is um, experimenting with generating transaction fees um, by becoming on and off ramps for capital, for example. And so um, I think that's an exciting opportunity for us um, to ensure that um, we participate um, in value when these networks run more nodes over time. And there's a lot still up in the air, right? But you'll see that in a lot of the 
networks, the way they operate is that full nodes take pieces of transaction fees via gas or other ways, right? And so how do you dip into that? How do you streamline that? Um, and those are a lot of the thoughts I have um, so that we can continuously subsidize it and uh, also become a really, really key component of all these networks, not just on the pure infrastructure side, but also on the liquidity side. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. How big is the theme right now? Yeah, we're 23 people um, right now. Um, and, uh, you know, we're growing fast. So we're at this point where we're making certain decisions. Um, we are now constantly hiring uh, pretty much. Um, but we're very conscious of how we scale, specifically the engineering side. We're very tech focused. Um, I'm kind of really the only business facing entity um, within Block Demon. Um, you know, we, we don't have a lot of account management, sales or marketing. Uh, most of our stuff is inbound and we try to automate everything, including sales. Um, but, you know, we need to think about how to accelerate some components of that in terms of um, ensuring that we can provide customer service at scale for some of these larger projects that we support. And so we're probably going to double in size, I guess, in the next six months. And, um, and then we'll, you know, take it from there. But yeah, it's a, it's complex, obviously, specifically with high end complex technology, scaling an engineering team, um, just pure engineering numbers isn't always the answer. Hiring a lot of people can, depending on where you are with technical debt and processes can really slow you down. Somebody needs to train these engineers and they need to learn how we do stuff. And so it means an experienced engineer instead of coding starts training other engineers. And, and so it really depends on, so it's a mixture of those factors. And so we try to grow the engineering team organically. Um, and, uh, or at least we've done that so far. Uh, I think now we might have to hire in larger batches, but those are the sort of fun challenges for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Having more demand than you can handle, I think, is a really good problem to have. <laughs> uh, though a, a challenging one, I'm sure, but uh, a really good one to have. How do you deal with all of that during such a global crisis? So how did the, you know, the pandemic impact the way you run the business? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, so, you know, it's been interesting. I think, it, I mean, it definitely had a big impact uh, for us thinking about maybe doing a more substantial round and then COVID kind of hit and it became clear that, um, you know, like a large scale round at the, in that time, March, April, um, would have been really painful because at that time everyone really was, you know, it was very unclear, uh, which is kind of ironic because in a way it got probably worse than a lot of people thought, but it hasn't financially. Um, at least on the investment side, right? Like if you look at the share price and investors and stuff, I think there was a feeling in March and April where most of the funds were really panicking um, about like, hey, this could be the deepest recession we've ever seen. Uh, and it still might be, but I think people have moved on from that a little bit and normal investing activities have sort of begun again. Um, and so we we did raise a little capital in April um, and we were lucky ultimately that we were, you know, we've been growing aggressively over the last, I'd say actually really 12 to 14 months. So we had a lot to show for it. And so we were able to raise capital at different terms, smaller rounds to ensure that we can continue to build towards 
what we always thought would come, which is what we're living now, which is this sort of multiple network effects driving growth. Um, but it's been intriguing for us because obviously as a software company, uh, we've been decentralized anyway. Um, and uh, ah, So you've been decentralized from the very beginning? That's correct. I mean, we had hubs, right? So we have an office and we have engineers in Ireland, in Galway, and then we had a hub in LA. And so, uh, but we also had, you know, folks in New York and some in Germany and like, you know, so it wasn't a requirement to be in a location necessarily, um, even though we did think about that. Um, but our scrum master and project manager sits in New York in the middle of it and manage two different time zones. And so uh, a lot happened on Zoom anyway, and we use all the software tools and, you know, all the standard stuff that allows for um, people to work from home. And so it didn't have any impact on, on productivity at all um, outside of, um, you know, having certain members of the team experience certain hardships like a relative getting sick or, um, you know, people having to deal with uh, the reality of what that meant, where we try to be very understanding and give people free time if they need it. Um, and so that's been, uh, th that had an impact uh, but I think overall a good one because I think it showed our team that we mean it when we, as an entrepreneur, you know, you always spin a yarn about family and how the early crew kind of belongs together and stuff. And very often it's hard to live up to it because, you know, I have to make choices based on realities that I can't control. But I was able to ensure that I could protect the people that needed protection and give them time off and not, you know, cut their pay and do anything drastic to anyone. And so I think it built a lot of trust. Um, and obviously, I think a sense of pride also now for the team to be in, and luck to be in an industry that is currently expanding in this COVID phase, right? Like crypto hasn't really been impacted by it, if you think about it, compared to any, you know, like running a hotel or uh, a restaurant or any of the other uh, travel-related uh, bits and pieces. You know, I think financial inclusion um, and financial tooling, um, the COVID has just accelerated the the awareness and uh, need uh, for those products. So I think we've indirectly probably benefited from it um, in that way, you know, as we can see with Bitcoin now as being maybe an alternative asset class to hedge uh, inflation. And so, you know, I think like we're, we're lucky to be in this industry that's actually currently growing, you know, and... Uh, uh, I don't think uh, a lot of other industries can say that, you know. And so, so I think, um, um, and so it's 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 an it's a weird time, because I'm concerned about the psychological and physical well-being of my team members, um, but the business is doing really really well, um, and so obviously that makes life a little easier because you don't have to worry that much about it. Um, I have friends in other lines of businesses who have much more existential threats besides these psychological and health issues to manage. So it's a hard time. So we try to be grateful and supportive um, where we can and, uh, you know, just uh, focus on, on delivering core product. But uh, I mean, it definitely changed my awareness of uh, also uh, psychological health of my team members. So we think a lot about, you know, I've, we've given company holidays, uh, like we're like, hey, we're just going to close uh, we did that in the summer for two days where nobody shows up to work and you don't have to take all, you know, we're just deciding everybody needs four or five days off um, and no matter who it is um, just to unwind and, you know, kind of try to be, um, yeah, flexible there. 
So for founders who are not so used to working remotely and that used to have, you know, an office to go to rather than a distributed team, obviously it's a challenge for everyone. And, you know, you brought up the issue of mental health, which I think tends to repeat itself in every conversation about this topic. But I just wonder, given that you've been running the team from the beginning this way, any thoughts about ways to try to mitigate some of these mental issues and check in with your teammates and make sure that everyone is committed and, and feeling good about the mission? Any thoughts there about how to do that better? Um, you know, I, I don't think I have a, I think it's, a, a, it's all kind of logical stuff. I think it's the cadence and sincerity of them. That matters right and so i think um uh, we have a lot of challenges we're thinking just now you know for example we normally once a year get everyone together for two days and you know the whole company discusses you know questions strategy direction like if you know early on i think it's important to have clarity of purpose and uh, uh flush out doubts and discuss them you know don't just suppress them and people who build core components of your product. And then those things are hard to do in Zoom, you know, like it's like a, an eight hour Zoom where people free flow, to, uh, uh, you know, kind of ideas and stuff. It's not a very productive uh, use of time. And so we're thinking a lot about how to keep some components of that. I think um, uh, being uh, like one of the things I haven't done and, and I've seen other people do um, is, for example, a lot of guys were very quick to cut people's salaries to extend runways. Um, even though they had good amounts of cash. Um, and I think that deflated a lot of employees also, you know, like kind of making cuts into people's um, financials in a time of huge financial anxiety um, is, uh, if you can avoid it, I recommend you do. You know, like it's it just um, it just adds, I think, um, to um, to the complexity of having a high performing team. Um, obviously in our case also would have been poorly received just because, you know, we were growing and are growing aggressively. Um, but I think I've seen that quite a lot where people make sacrifices on their team really quickly, uh, but don't like making sacrifices on, uh, investors and customers as easily. And, uh, you know, for me, team is always the core deliverable, um, of any of those things. You know, if my team doesn't build great product and believes in the mission to really, um, uh, bring to life what we want to, uh, I'm not going to have happy investors and I'm not going to have happy customers, you know? And so team kind of comes a little first for me, um, in terms of how I want to make sure, um, people feel, uh, but I'm also very transparent about like, we are a company, you know, like, it's like the, my hands are bound if we're not performing. Um, but if we're doing well, um, I'll, uh, probably I'm, I'm very open. I talk to people. Um, I try to at least directly as often as I can. Um, and, you know, we make a lot of little HR games and things like we cover healthcare. Uh, um, we have very uh, exuberant healthcare plans um, that we cover completely for folks, which sometimes is unusual in the startup world. And we really like doing that in a time like this. Um, we cover uh, childcare uh, for a lot of our folks. Um, and so I really try to think of myself as a team manager of athletes, you know, and I, my goal is to really allow them to work as well as they can. And so I try not to expand hardships, I feel, as a CEO onto them. Um, and I think that's that's been really the core um, of, of how we've managed, I think, to maintain motivation and excitement. Yeah, some great points there. 
I want to go back for a second. You talked earlier about fundraising during the pandemic. Any thoughts about, I know you've raised, what, like over 11 million by now from VCs. Any thoughts about best practices or any tips about how to approach the fundraising process from your experience? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's sort of just obviously common best practices and, you know, kind of track the people you talk to. Um, I think uh, it's always wise to be uh, prepared and concise and uh, do research on investors before you reach out to them. Um, and just, just to understand what they, you know, like I, I never like talking to a fund and be the guy where they're like, Oh yeah, we don't, you're raising for, for a pre-seed. We don't invest in pre-seed. You could have seen that if you looked at our website, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, so like, you know, do a little research, like do the basic stuff, like, you know, like not, uh, there's nothing new here. Um, but I feel like um, you want to make an invest investor. You, you got to put yourself in the shoes of an investor. Um, they have an, in, it's an interesting job because you need to sell them on something that they then need to sell to their partnership. And so the reason why they ask all these questions is not that they don't believe in you. They're anticipating the questions they're going to get in the partner meeting. Um, and there are certain things they just have to, you know, information they have to provide for financial and legal reasons, like what's the total addressable market. And I've always been like, hey, listen, we're, you know, in a new industry, new horizon, we do things totally different. Like, you know, I can't tell you what that market looks like in a year, but it's like something you have to have an answer for, because otherwise they just simply can't fill out the paperwork that allows them to make an investment. And so, you know, to kind of sort of have have the information, you, you know, you think they'll need ready and at hand, Um and uh, and be diligent and uh, professional uh, in your conduct. Um, I think is sometimes people forget that, um, and uh, and I think that's always very helpful. Um, even simple things like you know research the partner you talk to on LinkedIn, see whether is there any common connections, what have they done before, uh, finding uh, smart points to talk to people. All that stuff matters. Um, but ultimately, uh, people need to trust you with their money and, and believe in the vision that you lay out uh, for exuberant return. And so I think it's also important to understand that uh, VCs think in billion-dollar terms, and you got to have a narrative for it that needs to be believable. And, uh, you know, if you want to be a $100 million company, you're in the wrong place here in the Valley. You know, like kind of so, like... <laughs> right. Given that many uh, people, I think even within, you know, the VC circle are still not fully familiar with the nuances of blockchain, did you target specifically those who are deep into crypto and you don't have to spend a ton of time kind of educating them about that? Or did you also try to target the more general funds? Um, I tried both strategies and came out with a good mix. Uh, both have advantages and disadvantages, right? Like the crypto native guys tend to be very opinionated based on the previous investments they've made, you know, like kind of, so that can be bad too, you know, like um, there's actually very little transparency in the market. And so everyone, um, and so, you know, I think it's, it, it we've, we have a nice mix. Um, my initial choice was to have non-crypto, but smart investors um, that are seen as more enterprisey because that's, the customer cohort of institutional investors um, to use my notes I wanted to attract. And so we had Comcast Ventures, Boltstart, Lira Hippo, Heavybit, the Roku founders, like folks like that. And then uh, over time, we've added um, strategically 
uh, crypto native companies that aided us tremendously with adoption and insights like CoinShares, CoinFund, Hashkey, Fanbushi, Kinetic. Um, you know, I'm sure I'm like, you know, like um, I'm, I'm leaving out uh, quality ones uh, uh, for sure. But like those type of guys have aided us enormously. How did you approach and was successful in convincing non-crypto investors to invest in you? Because as you said earlier, what you're doing is pretty complex. And there's a lot of nuances. Not only is it technical, uh, very technical, but it's also like the whole notion of funding nodes and how crypto works and so forth. Again, like for folks who are not down the rabbit hole, could be a bit intimidating. Obviously, you've been successful in overcoming that. Curious how, how you thought about it. Yeah, um, you know, and it's it hasn't been easy because I, I definitely want to say it's harder to sell those because they're a lot more skeptic. There's a lot more skepticism there than with a crypto native fund who, by definition, needs to be bullish on crypto. You know, because if they're not bullish on the crypto market, what are they doing? So you just have to do one additional layer of sales with the non crypto guys because you have to sell them on blockchain per se. You don't have to do that with a blockchain investor. And so I think, um, and I think we've had enough signals in the market that you can do that if you know how to spin a good story, which is, you know, kind of even like currently, I mean, right now it's a lot easier than it ever was because Goldman Sachs just started a crypto trading division. Um, you know, PayPal just onboarded Bitcoin and people can make payments and, you know, like kind of the general adoption, um, has, um, really uh, been uh, progressively improving. So I think traditional investors are much more likely to invest at this point because we have more proof points that, you know, uh, institutional adoption is coming. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's important to lead with those components for those funds. You know, you don't need to lead with those components when you talk to uh, a crypto native fund because that's why they're in this game, you know? And so it's just really knowing how to tell the story to the right audience, you know? And so with traditional investors, you have to tell the story of the market per se and the potential and where it's currently at. Um, I think uh, that's very important. And so I always keep track of like big regulatory changes, like the OCC announcing that anyone in the US who has a banking license can become a crypto custodian. Those are actually news that are very important for investors because it means that the adoption Mainstream adoption is maybe a little closer than people previously thought. Um, and so it's important to know how to make these points, you know? Yeah, makes sense. And uh, to your point, are institutions coming or are they already here? Like, what, where are we on that spectrum from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I think, you know, I, I would say that we have maybe 5% of the financial institutions are maybe here in the crypto space. But I think over the next, you know, year or so, that number uh, is maybe going to be 10 to 20%. And so, uh, you know, it, it took us 10 years to get to 5%, and it's going to take us one year to get to 10%. You know, it doesn't mean everyone is, you know, it means one out of 10 banks will start to seriously do stuff. Uh, but for us, because we're still actually a very small ecosystem, that's going to be super significant. And so I'm very confident that uh, the uh, volume within uh, crypto will double over the next 12 months. And um, I think we have enough of the squares and PayPal's and, um, and folks like that. Um, Libra 
coming on. Um, there's going to be enough uh, activity that we will have. Uh, uh, we'll continue to have the market, at least for companies like us, will grow quicker than we can probably build on it. Yeah. Um, so, Constantine, great discussion. Before we end, uh, one last question. I can't end the discussion without asking you about it. What's your take on Bitcoin? I love it, man. Uh, I think Bitcoin is uh, a poetic marvel and something that hopefully will, you know, is the foundation of all crypto projects. I think um, Bitcoin is, has a purity to it that um, uh, is uh, uh, untarnished, even though we have issues on hash rates and all sorts of things. Um, but it is the proof point that uh, is uh, not going to fail, you know, and, and uh, it would be so hard if there would not be a Bitcoin. Um, because we can always go back to Bitcoin, you know, and so I think that's the uh, uh, the cornerstone of everything we do is uh, foundational around what Bitcoin does. And so I'm very grateful and uh, super excited about Bitcoin. We're actually very aggressive in how we think about Bitcoin. We run large lightning hubs and payment stuff, and we're actually uh, probably the only node operator um, that, as I mentioned, actually allows for automated node deployment on Bitcoin, and we're constantly thinking about next generation of products in that area. And so, we're, I'm personally very bullish on Bitcoin, and I think it's a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, that makes the two of us. Um, so, <laughs> Constantine, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion, and I uh, appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and uh, insights. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.